because we're talking about things as the new normal or even as the next normal, that psychologically limits our ability to act and react. We're putting ourselves in a box. And that box is sort of framed by the world we once knew and how we're trying to adapt in this new world. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hey, everyone, and welcome to a very special live video version of the Retail Remix podcast. Hopefully you know me. I'm Alicia Esposito. You definitely know our guest today, Brian Solis. Brian, always a pleasure to catch up with you and, of course, um, hear your take on what's going on in innovation and specifically retail. Great to have you. Well, it's wonderful to be here, although this is the first time we've worked together in all of these years where we're actually doing something virtual. So I'm excited to see what we do here. (laughs) I know. Absolutely. It's always through phone. So this is definitely new world, new realities, as I say. So excited to uh, hop on the line with you. To kick things off, wanted to get your take on how your new role is going. So you announced a few months back your role as global innovation evangelist at Salesforce. I think it was around like March or so. So how's that been going? It's been a few months now. (laughs) It seems like a a year at least. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's really a wonderful and welcome change in the direction that I was headed. So uh, for those who don't know, I've been a digital analyst and a digital anthropologist for a very, very, very long time. And my job essentially was to study disruptive technologies impact on markets, retail being one of them. And then as an anthropologist, study technology's impact on basically humanity. How is it changing our behaviors, our values, our norms, our decisions, et cetera, routines, and try to reverse engineer them to help executives understand those trends and move forward with a human-centered approach. And studying all of the different technologies, especially as they became more exponential, as innovation was accelerating, was really too much to to track as one person. And so my friends at Salesforce offered me the opportunity to continue the work in studying digital anthropology and understanding then how we can use technology with a purpose. And it's been phenomenal. It's just been absolutely phenomenal access to some of the most innovative companies in the world, Salesforce being one of them. But having access to some incredible minds, some incredible trailblazers to not only inspire my work and my research, but also to be able to share my research with open minds for people who are ready to bring change, who are ready to innovate forward. And in just a few short months, I've actually completely reset my entire narrative, my entire research track, my entire findings. I've, I've almost left behind most of my work before March 1st. Of course, related to uh, you know, this global pandemic that's going on. Mm-hmm. But of course, it, it's, it's sort of forced reset, both a new opportunity, a new role, also this pandemic to see what's happening in a new light and then be able to create new paths forward that I might not have otherwise seen. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. You actually sort of already answered my next question for you around how everything going on kind of reset your focus or shifted your priorities. Because I mean, like like you said earlier, I mean, covering innovation is already such a 
big topic. There are so many layers to what goes into that. I mean, it's company culture, it's tactics, it's audience, it's the more behavioral or, or psychological components that go into innovative ideas. But then throw in a global pandemic and it's a whole big, it can get a little messy, I could imagine. But how did how did the context of this new world and just the uncertainty and, and volatility, how did this kind of change your path as you were starting this this new role? Yeah, you know what, I gotta remember, the word that you just used, volatility, is actually one that I have not heard used enough to describe these times. In fact, I hear uncertainty all the time, but not mm-hmm. volatility. And the reason why this, this word is important is because that's exactly what makes this so complicated. We've always had uncertainty. If you think about it, life was never sort of guaranteed in any direction, but the volatility is actually what changed my work specifically. So if you think, and retail has been one of the most important conversations I've been having almost on a daily basis because it was shut down. It was shut down. We're starting to see, I, I take a global perspective on innovation. So we, it's not just the United States that's shut down or, or that we're reopening too early. We're starting to see, for example, in Australia, what happens when you open too early? They're going into second wave of shutdowns right now. And that means that we have to, in real time, learn how to live with volatility. And so how that changed my narrative was understanding then how can you innovate in times of great duress. And there's that old saying that necessity is the mother of invention. Now I'm going to have to come up with some, some update to that around volatility because what we're in danger of and how this inspired my work is we're in danger of trying to survive right now. We're reacting to this disruption. And I think psychologically in the back of the mind of executives, there's this idea that we're going to one day return to normal. And that is the antithesis of innovation. That is essentially, I, th- I presented on this actually at RIC last, last year in New York around iteration versus innovation. Iteration is actually using new technology, new trends to update existing models. Nothing wrong with that. We do have to iterate, but there's also innovation, which is creating new value. And that's, that's what these times also call for. So what I needed to do in my work was to practice what I preach, which was, let me just clear the slate. Let me understand and appreciate this disruption and this volatility. Because if we don't, we're going to try to fight to get back to normal. When in fact, what we're looking at is normal being part of the problem. So if you look at Amazon, I think it officially launched in 1995, 1996. You look at Uber. I think Uber launched in 2007. Facebook, Twitter, 2006, 2007. We've been seeing the digitization of not only commerce and retail, but humanity for the better part of 20 years. And so the disruption that we see from a business standpoint by this pandemic is 20 years in the making. It's not related to COVID-19 per se. It's just accelerated by it. And so that means that we've had a lot of runway to figure this out. And we've seen something like, what is it? Since March 1st, e-commerce has accelerated its growth rate, its 10-year growth rate in three months. Add to that the psychology of change, which is 66 days on average to make new behaviors automatic. Add to that the anxiety that a consumer or a human being might feel in going into physical spaces, 
concerns for their health and safety. Essentially, what you have is forced new models for retail to think now about how do we innovate forward so we can capitalize on the digital first behaviors that are now starting to take deep root within consumer mindsets to move forward. And then I'll kind of wrap this up because I could talk about this for hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I called it the novel economy. Yeah. And I do want to get into that. So yeah, I didn't want to talk about the new normal because none of this is normal. This is an interim normal. And it's, a, it's as an optimist, it's an opportunity to reimagine the way forward. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Let's definitely dig into that because, you know, I agree. It's an interesting dynamic of conversations that we're having, especially right now, because there are a lot of debates around what behaviors or, or pivots from the consumer standpoint were out of necessity or urgency, right? Like an immediate need to replace something like, oh, I can't go into a store. So I need to go online to get what I need. Or, you know, I've never done online grocery shopping before. I don't want to go into the store because I'm at risk or someone I know is at risk. I'm going to go online. But will that change over time? Who knows? The jury's still out. But that that conversation of short versus long term and also what will be a completely new trend or disruption, or is this just an acceleration of the already existing trends? And I guess your concept of the novel economy may help kind of break that down. I I love this notion of starting fresh, because I think we do sometimes kind of dwell too much on the past and history tells us or our past business reports tell us, and we don't have any benchmarks based on something like this before. So I do think having that new, completely clean slate is is important. It can kind of give us a new perspective on things. But let's get into the novel economy because I really appreciate your ability to not only dig into the technical side, but also the psychological, the emotional factors that impact us as humans, right? Because it's all all connected. Let's start at the high level and then we can dig into like what's happening now, I guess. What exactly is the novel economy? And let's look at this through the lens of retail, I guess, too, and how it's impacting our consumers. What really drove you to say, no, this is this is our world now, and this is how we need to be thinking in order to enable moving forward as a business or even supporting innovation? Yeah, everything, everything in my opinion, is up for a reset. It could be. And I think it's going to be clearly defining who are the winners and who are, who are not the winners moving forward. Putting that nicely. <laughs> <laughs> because we're talking about things as the new normal or even as the next normal, that psychologically limits our ability to act and react. And we're putting ourselves in a box. And that box is sort of framed by the world we once knew and how we're trying to adapt in this new world. Let me take a step back to just talk about the word novel itself. It was inspired by the novel coronavirus. And novel in that context means new and unusual. There's no playbook. There's no best practices or case studies that we could follow. So we're sort of inventing, or we can invent as we go. So essentially, we're coming into you know this in one regard, and we'll be coming out of this in some regard. And it's really sort of a choice that we have an opportunity to answer, to consider. So the novel economy then said, if we're entering, like with the novel coronavirus, new and unusual times, then let's break out the reality of it. It's broken into three phases. First is survive, pretty much where we all are. 
work from home, taking physical retail spaces, for example, and having to reimagine them for a virtual world. So the reactive component is to think about, well, we've got to go digital. We've got to update, upgrade all of our existing touch points to support the scale. Of course, we have to deal with the hardships of closures and what that means in terms of furloughs and layoffs and really difficult conversations to have. But it is a moment in time. The phase two then is, well, what do we do next? And phase two is alive. So survive, then alive. Alive here is where I say, let's forego conversations of a new normal and next normal. Let's think about it as an interim normal. So in phase one, we do what everybody does, which is react. So if everybody's reacting and everybody's investing in digital transformation, e-commerce, working from home, et cetera, then we're at parity. So what do we do now that's going to be different to allow ourselves to move forward? We have a force reset, a force functioning device that is this global pandemic to rethink right now, what do we do differently moving forward? It's a luxury actually that we would not have otherwise had. So in the alive phase, there's iteration. So improve what is. And now we make strides to all of those things we've talked about in meetings. How are we going to attack D to C? How are we going to think about Amazon? How are we going to think about our next products and our next services? You're already taking losses right now. So we've already thought about innovation as a cost center. Now it's an investment in your future. So accelerate those conversations. It's counterintuitive in this moment. People actually want to hunker down. They want to focus. They want to cut costs. They want to do all... A lot of decisions are made by the CFO right now. But the history shows in in every point of disruption, whether it's a recession or depression or what have you, great innovation comes from it because people say, this is that moment where we can do what we couldn't do before. So then that leads to phase three. That's the thrive part. This is where differentiation starts to happen. We're now looking at a period of about 18 months, right? Even if we got, a, say, a vaccine in January, it's going to take months and months and months for the world to have herd immunity, to be able to feel confident and again. But we're deep-rooted in new behaviors in the psychology of this new consumerism. So Thrive is then accelerating in this digital-first, digital-only era. The world is reopening. So we're ahead of the game in reimagining what physical now looks like Then the relationship between physical and digital, right? In the alive phase, we're putting plexiglass in stores, we're giving people masks, we're handing out sanitizer. But in the thrive phase, we get to completely reimagine space and the relationship with technology and space, computer vision, data, experiential uh, learning and insights and interaction. For example, a company like Beta, which was already reimagining stores with the onset of Toys R Us and their own flagship stores and what it means to be a store. We were already starting to get a taste of what that possibility could look like. So now you have the survive, alive, and thrive phases of the novel economy. You have this framework for the next 18 to 24 months. And so how do you want to operate within that? And I'll turn it back over to you. But for me, in my work, I've already started to see in three to four months, the rapid changes of consumerism in that digital behavior. And I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to the generational end concept, but it's a profound opportunity for those willing to pay attention and do something different moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So a quick follow-up question to that. I love that it's broken down into stages, but my question is, are those stages and how quickly, in this case, retailers 
go through those stages? Is it contingent upon like where we are as a world, like going through the pandemic? Or is it possible that businesses can kind of go through these stages more swiftly, you know, more efficiently, depending on how much they embrace this idea that we're, we're starting from scratch and we, we have an opportunity to push a little further and do a little more. Because I feel like I saw a pretty distinct line in the ground between those that like really rose to the occasion and like we're set, we need to make some sort of change to be where our customers are. So let's do it. Let's move. And those that did have a tougher time. So again, is it contingent upon like where we are in in context of the pandemic itself, or is it more business and I guess culturally driven? It's a hard question to answer because we're not dealing with a logical situation. We're dealing with an incredibly irrational situation and also a virus. And the reason why is because unfortunately, especially those in the United States or in Argentina or in other countries, not Argentina, Brazil, excuse me, where we see politics affecting how humanity deals with the virus. So it makes it illogical. So for example, we've seen in in many retail environments in Australia, the United States, especially all around the world, where there are physical altercations in retail environments over whether or not someone should wear a mask. So now you have a workforce who's already, you know, that's already incredibly delicate, uh, fragile, now having to contend with not only operating a store, but also having to operate now within worrying about their own health, but now their physical safety because they have to enforce these new types of things that people are, are fighting back against. So this is one answer to your question because essentially a long way of saying, unless something changes at a leadership level, we're going to prolong this unnecessarily. And that means that it's going to give time to retail executives to absolutely consider now not only how do we operate in these times, so in that, that three-series framework, but what's the purpose of which we operate? Because we don't necessarily have to be the retailer to all. We have to be a retailer to a group of consumers who share the same values and aspirations as we do. And this means that some retailers are going to have to make choices about the customers they want and the customers they don't want. And this means that brand itself is now up for a reset. So pillars have to consider consumer and employee safety. They have to consider values, as as we've just mentioned, but also what does being a beacon of light as a brand mean in these times that are chaotic, that are volatile, that are incredibly frustrating? And then also, how do we lead our customers forward by delivering those aspirational experiences where we are the light uh, in their world. So this is a philosophical conversation that will guide the experiential uh, investments, but also then the technology investments that bring to life those experiences that we want to give people. So the thing that I'll sort of close here, and if if I didn't hit any part of your question, I promise I will. Uh, This is a time for leadership. And not necessarily one driven by the existing standards of what shareholder value and stakeholder value are, but really considering now what it means to be a brand 
and then create the retail infrastructure and experience around that. Because the more this plays out and the more, the more that we play to fears, the more we create anxiety, the more we introduce uh, what's called a deeper somatic marker in the lives of every consumer where you're going to feel a deep visceral response to these times and we're going to look for the things that make us feel better, not worse, because that's kind of what's playing out right now. Yeah, it's really interesting, Brian, how your response evolved, because I didn't really go into crafting this question thinking that we were going to get into mission and values, right? But I, I think the key thing for us all to remember now is that these are and should be integral into the brand, you know, the retail business. And, you know, that's always been the case. But now I feel like there is a very clear shift that like, you know, a lot of marketers used to say like, oh, like we we shouldn't support X or stand by Y because that's, that's risky, right? Like, let's try and be as for everyone as possible. It's not you know, muddy the waters or, or try and put support towards any specific cause, whether it's social, political, environmental. But it seems like, from what I gather from your answer, that this is just kind of an, an innate non-negotiable at this point, that there needs to be like a deep reassessment of the brand and, and what a brand wants to be in context of the consumer in order to kind of do everything else. Am I, am I getting that right? I just want to make sure I'm not, you know, misinterpreting what you're saying. No, I mean, in, a, in, a, in an ideal world, it wouldn't have to be this way. But because it is what it is, you're cons- let me give you a couple stats. 64% of consumers right now are fearful of their own health. I don't know why that number isn't higher, but 82% are fearful of the health of others. 64% are worried about the impact of all of this on their personal job security. And 88% are worried about the pandemic's effects on the economy. Add to that politics, add to that what's happening in physical environments, add to that the anger about something as simple as masks. And what you're really starting to see is that humanity is in a boiling pot of water. And where is refuge, right? Retail itself, I mean, we used to talk about retail therapy. Retail itself is meant to be a form of escapism, is meant to be a form of personal validation and aspiration, regardless of what it is we sell. And now you have this pandemic, but let's take a look at a couple other trends that have been happening up until this moment. One was sustainability, right? So we were already seeing customers saying that they want to do more business with brands. So retailers and consumer brands that are thinking about the planet, right? Because if we think that COVID-19 is the last disruption that we're going to have as a, as a human race, we've got a, we've got a lot of surprises coming. So essentially, we have to consider how important this is, not just for some, let's just get on the bandwagon kind of trend. This is a real issue. Then you have another trend that was coming into this conscious consumerism. Do I need all this stuff? Marie Kondo, for example, helped us understand our relationship with material items that maybe we don't need to surround ourselves with everything. Maybe the catharsis of donating things uh, and reassessing what it is we need moving forward helps us, right? And then there's this other trend that sort of sparked out of the pandemic, which is questioning then my relationship with brands and material goods. What do I really need? Because right now, not just businesses are resetting things, but also 
human beings are resetting things like, boy, I can go outside now. Uh, I, I need a bicycle. I need walking shoes. I need athleisure wear. I need, you know, so now we're reassessing all of the things that we need for this, this life. And coming back to that psychological conversation is, will these new behaviors stick? Then you add, lastly, the somatic marker that is this pandemic. And you have essentially a recipe, if you're willing to bake it or cook it, whatever you want to do with it, to deliver greater value to someone who's feeling all of these things. So this becomes essentially a foundation for new brand, but also new retail experiences and also product innovation. So what could we create that's new, that unlocks new value for this consumer? I call this an Ignite moment. And it's built upon, years ago, I, wrote, I, I worked a lot with Google around introducing micro moments, which was the mobile first consumer revolution that was taking place. But then I realized that if there's a lot of this frustration, anxiety, stress, and all of these trends that are sort of coming together and being accelerated because of the pandemic, then the Ignite moment is our chance to figure out when you come into contact with my touch point or my brand, whether that's web, whether that's physical product or what have you, how do you feel? Because it's an opportunity to say, I get you, let's move forward together. And this, this is powerful. This is powerful. Yeah. I was going to ask how the work and research that you're doing now kind of plays into other theories and principles that, that you've established over the years. Like earlier, you referenced digital Darwinism, the micro moments, which I know people still look to for insight and guidance around what that experience looks like. But now that you know, we're, we're craving these interactions, right? Human to human, you know, face to face is important. And I think now more than ever, we're realizing, oh, like we need to like be by each other, like physically to like feel connection. Now we're trying to replicate that through digital to feel that connection, less lonely, which there's been research, you know, over the past few years around how even Gen Z is becoming the, the most stressed out, lonely generation. That's a whole other <laughs> question. But I guess my, my question for you is, how does this era we're in where we're, we're craving that emotional connection, that context, like, I understand you, let me give you what you need. How does this play into the digital influence and, and what brands and retailers need to do to kind of reach in the moment? What is that strategic playbook, I guess you could say? Like, what does that look like right now? That's a, that's a really good question. <laughs> so it's, it's essentially the one we're writing or need to write right now. Right. And if you think about it, people are going to write a different playbook in, in how they choose to see or not see what's happening in these times. So as a digital anthropologist, what gave birth to digital Darwinism originally was my observations that as technology and society evolve, so does humanity. And in humanity, that's driven by cultures, values, norms, routines, etc. Digital Darwinism is more pervasive now than it's ever been because you're starting to watch essentially Darwinism play out. What this has led to for me in my research is this notion. I haven't published this yet, but this notion of Generation N. So it's Generation Novel, which is born out of the concept of the novel economy, which builds upon my previous research that said, let's 
even as you mentioned, like Generation Z is the most anxious, stressed out, lonely generation that we've seen in a long time. A lot of it due to the relationship with technology, uh, digital phones, social networks. I, in fact, I wrote a book about it called LifeScale uh, that explores the challenges of rewiring your brain for living a digital lifestyle in this regard and what it does to us mentally, physically, biologically, and then what to do about it moving forward. But Generation N is a really important reference point to guide innovation moving forward. I tend to want to give things a purpose, but if you look at like the work of IDEO or Disney, essentially what we're looking at is human or Lego, human-centered innovation. So in order to be human-centered, you have to understand then humanity. And so Generation N was my data-driven approach and then also anthropological approach to looking at how has the consumer changed in these few short months. Before this, I talked about Generation C, where the C stood for connected. And this has been sort of the, the nature of my work for the past 12 years. What I had documented 12 years ago or 10 years ago was that if you live a digital first lifestyle, whether that's shopping at Amazon, whether that's using Uber, whether that's using Postmates to have things delivered, whether that's using social networks to connect and communicate, you developed a new series of behaviors that were cross-generational. So if you were 55, 35, 25, you kind of went through the customer journey the same way. You had similar affinities to brands. This was important because it completely changed how we thought about personas, how we thought about the customer journey and the, the traditional funnel, et cetera, and the hierarchy of brand relationships and retail relationships with customers. Now you add a pandemic. And so kind of hear me out here. You have Generation C who was already basically trained and prepared for a shutdown. Ah, this doesn't affect me because I'm, I'm connected. I still shop this way. I have stuff delivered. So now they become the expert consumer because this is they're operating in their environment. They're totally native here. But now you have, let's say, the, the later market majority who were not digital first, who have to be digital first now. So now they're coming into this and they're learning the benefits and conveniences of digital. And add to that, they were also the ones who I think 70, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's in the 70s that even as retail starts to open over the next year, are not going to go shopping just because of concerns for health and safety. They're now really excited to have this access to digital and they're going to use it. So now the concept of Generation C is bigger, right? So you're connected customer. Once, once you start living this digital life as a consumer, you want things faster, you become impatient, you have higher expectations, you want things personalized. So you start to become this ultra consumer that brands and retailers already had a design for. Now you add the somatic marker of the pandemic, right? Toilet paper will never look at an empty roll of toilet paper again the same way. You know, these, are, these, are, these are things that we'll remember moving forward. And so now you have an emotional bind across all of these demographics. And so essentially, if we take them time to study, then what's on their mind? What are they buying? How are they shopping? What are they aligning with? Data, it's all digital. We have an opportunity to learn from that in a way that helps us rethink brand, helps us rethink retail experience, helps us rethink the digital journey, helps us rethink safety and wellness for physical design so that people will feel good coming into our stores and invited and welcome uh, and encouraged to come. 
And essentially you have now the field from which we can pull all kinds of greatness in terms of what the future could look like as inspired by Generation N. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And I guess, you know, when you share this with all the folks that you've been having conversations with, business leaders, business executives, are they like completely on board? Like, this is great. This is exciting. Or are they like, what do I even do with this? (laughs) Like, where do I even start? Because like you said, this is going to be a point of evolution, right? Like over time, things may change a little bit. We may feel a bit more at ease or we may have different expectations based on what we experience with other brands. So I guess the big question is like how on board are are people right now with actually moving forward and and digging into all of this, digging into all the opportunity? Yeah, look, I love the question and it's absolutely the right question to ask. Some don't care about it at all. Some really see it as an opportunity and need help forward. And look, I want to make clear, Generation N isn't the be-all, end-all customer segment we have to consider. There's still people who don't want this, who like the, the physicality of their experiences. And there's nothing wrong with that. So essentially what it means, though, is if we care about customers, then we have to look at what is my iteration. So I still have to evolve. And then what's my innovation strategy and how much am I willing to go after Gen N? Because it's not like once you taste all of the benefits of living a digital lifestyle that you're going to say, you know, I just want the uh, inconsistencies of experiences, the struggles, uh, you know, the tassels that I've had before. I'm going to go back to that. You don't, you don't go back to that at all. And I'll give you one example. Before the pandemic, I had studied the rise of click and collect, BOPIS, whatever you want to call it, curbside. And I had partnered with a company where we sent out secret shoppers all around the country to some of the top brands in retail, food space. We we wanted to sort of have equal representation across the board. And the, (laughs) the number one standard that customers said equated to a great experience. Look, there was a lot of them, but I just want to kind of demonstrate where impatience is a virtue, is that the magic marker for a good experience was a two minute mark. Once I parked my car, I was back in it within two minutes. If you, if you were to talk to somebody who's in the late market majority about, you know, how, how, what are your standards for customer experience? You're not going to hear like, when I get my phone and I order and I get out of my car, I need to be back in it in two minutes. That's like, what? Why? What's, what's the rush? Where's the fire? But it gives you sort of this, this idea that once you become a digital customer, you are this digital customer and you, you get much more entrenched in it. So you have a different set of expectations for what is a good experience. This is why D2C was exceptionally brilliant or that where they were exceptionally brilliant in reimagining new types of products, services, and then also digital and physical experiences because they nailed this impatience as a virtue, personalization, convenience, et cetera. Uh, So my point is, is that one of these customer segments is going to grow. The other one is either going to remain at parity or become part of this Gen N, Gen C, et cetera. So this means that moving forward, to your point of what are executives thinking about, do they need to do anything about it? And if so, what do they do about it? That means you have to break out your strategy now twofold. One is one team is dedicated to the digital transformation and modernization of the iterative model, operations, processes, systems, technologies, et cetera, to deliver just better, more efficient experiences as people start to want 
new, better things. For example, you see this with checkouts. We see this at Apple stores. We see this at Amazon Go. We're now, Walmart is really starting to experiment very well here. We see shopping carts that are now starting to become self-checkout stands that are mobile. So what you put in there, you're checking out in real time. And then you have another track dedicated to whatever extent you feel comfortable for innovation. So what does the future of retail look like now that there's been disruption? What is our e-commerce uh, look like what's our journey look like for this gen and this much more impatient, this much more demanding consumer? Uh, what are they looking for? What do they value? What is our brand for these these consumers? So that you have a parallel track that's kind of moving in this front. And then lastly, what are we not seeing? You know, what's the IP around what makes us who we are that we can do new and great things? So one example of that is Lego. So Lego wasn't just a retailer and wasn't just a consumer good product. It now is a, it's, it's now in the entertainment business, right? So it found an entirely new value creation opportunity that I think all retailers and brands need to consider. So it's now a choice. So I, ter- I turn your question back onto executives. This is just the reality. This is what's happening. And you have a choice. You answer the question. What do you want to be in 18 months from now? No, I think it's a great point for teams to ponder and kind of think through. And I do want to dig a little bit deeper into that innovation piece a little bit more, because I know one of the things that I've been hearing over and over again is that and we, we've talked about using data to drive innovation, using that insight. And like I mentioned earlier, the benchmarks aren't there, right? Because it happened so rapidly. I mean, we're still we're in a five month period. So I guess there, there's a little bit to work with at this point, but still a lot up in the air. So do you have any tips or or recommendations to help teams really peel back the layers of what's possible, what those innovation opportunities are when we're still very much forming the picture of, of what this customer is ultimately going to be or, or may continue to be evolving as, you know, again, it's also so up in the air. So any, any practical advice there to help them make that process a little bit more seamless? <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I t- my research is so big and deep that even I struggle to make a lot of this practical. But yeah, no, I have to think about things this way. So it's a great question. We don't know what we don't know. And I think that's been always the problem with even data-driven insights, right? We tend to bring cognitive biases into how we see change. And it's, a, it's just a human way of rationalizing things. But that also means that we really don't see, for example, Gen N and how the consumers change so radically in five months. So what, what that means is that we have to form a group of unbiased, cross-functional stakeholders. Maybe it's a steering committee, maybe it's a center of excellence, whatever it is to come together and start asking different questions. I think I put a list, and I hope I opened the right file before our call here. Sort of like, let's get to the root of this to say, all right, what are, we don't even have to talk about Gen N and Gen C and get all geeky. We could just talk about customers. What are their daily habits and behaviors? What are they feeling? What are they worried about? How in control do they feel? What really matters uh, to customers right now? You know, essentially coming up with a question set that's going to help us arrive at at answers that are different than the answers that we're arriving at today. And then cross-functionally, we can say, well, look, I don't have answers to that question. So could I get it with my existing data inputs today? 
or do we need to make investments in getting those those inputs so that we can answer these questions? And then cross-functionally, how does that affect you in sales, you in marketing, you in service, you in product development or product marketing, so that we can get the answers, answer the questions together, and then come up with a roadmap moving forward. What are we going to tackle? Like what's urgent? What's longer term? And then continually reassess that in real time because things are changing so dynamically. But essentially what that means is we need a a little micro-operational model change. Leadership needs to support the fact that one, we don't have the answers, but two, we need to apply resources here that are so precious and it's, it's counterintuitive because we want to cut costs and cut resources. But this is our way forward. And then three, a decision-making mechanism that allows us to test and learn rapidly in some small places, and then also where we can roll that out in bigger places. And then ultimately, we have to then bring, of course, IT has a seat at that table and say, all right, now let's divide and conquer. What do we need to improve operationally to iterate? forward and where do we want to innovate forward and then dedicate those teams and resources to those tracks it's the only way forward essentially what you're doing is you're creating a data culture that supports decision making that supports transformation and innovation in real time and that i mean it's a simple model and we could get we could get geekier about it over time but that is the model forward Yeah, that's extremely helpful. Thank you for getting a bit tactical with me, especially because my next question for you is, we're getting into a very important time in retail now, back to school and eventually holiday, whether we like it or not, it's coming. Um, And I know there have been a lot of debates, coverage around what back to school is going to look like for actual consumers, households. And it does vary depending on, you know, where you are. And I'm sure it will evolve over time. But there has been a very fascinating pivot in terms of consumer spending, a lot more emphasis on setting children up for success, you know, outfitting homes for that learning experience, investing more in technology, learning tools. So very very interesting shift from that standpoint. But as we start to think through the context of the consumer, their mindsets, how they're feeling, their fears, what's your take on what's going to happen as we get into holiday season, which is always like about magic and engagement and entertainment. I mean, there's going to be a a very different lens on this season, I feel like, but would love your take on, you know, any closing tips, takeaways, or just observations, because I I definitely don't expect you to have all the answers right now, but um, would would love your take on what you're seeing. (laughs) Alicia, the questions that you're asking. (laughs) Sorry. I want to I want to watch this back and take notes because I think this essentially what we're you're asking the answers become the playbook right for mm-hmm. moving forward in in times of uncertainty and volatility. There's a strong desire for that like come kind of full circle that return to normal and normal is largely a function of routines and retail is certainly an industry based on routines. Uh, back to school, Halloween, Thanksgiving, holidays, etc. But we have to remember that the question you're asking right now is probably the same question we're going to have to ask for back to school holiday 2021 as well. <laughs> Not coming out of this anytime soon. It comes back to customers. 
right? There's nothing wrong with magic. We need magic in our lives. The human race is resilient. That, that much we've learned over time. But it has to mean much more than routine. I think the companies that add value and magic to these difficult times to help people feel like someone is looking out for them and thinking about them, I think that's what we really need right now more than anything. So for example, with back to school, it isn't just here's paper, pencils, laptops, et cetera. It's the narrative. It's the products that we source and the products that we bundle that help people understand, hey, there's some of you who are going to be remote. Here's your back to school message. There's those who are going back to school and are freaked out about it because they have to. So here's your back to school engagement. And so we have to think much more empathetically about how people are making decisions and choose which customers we want and and we don't want. But the same is going to be true for Halloween. Some are not going to go out. Some will because they're just got to go out. And then what's that message for those people and what they're feeling and what they're doing? So it comes comes back to those questions that we were asking earlier to get tactical is that we really have to be empathetic as an organization. And I call it data-driven empathy is that the data, we have to humanize the data in order to deliver these routines in ways that aren't just, okay, back to school, check, 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 check. It's, I get you. I understand you're dealing with this remote working or sorry, remote learning. It's got to be stressful for parents. You're taking time away from work. You're doing all these things. I get you. Here's your thing. And that really demonstrates and communicates to the consumer that we're thinking differently about these times. And it isn't just about pushing you into uh, the trap of consumerism for this timeframe. It's helping you to do things better in these times. Yeah. Love that. Well, I don't know how we did it, but we're already like pushing an hour <laughs> on, on the record. So um, thank you as always, Brian, for uh, taking the time out to chat with me. Like you said, I feel like we can continue to peel back the layers and, and geek out for hours and hours. But to close things out, calls to action, next steps that folks watching now can take to continue to learn about Generation N, the novel economy, what they can do to support innovation or, or any closing tips. We'll kind of let people choose their journey there. <laughs> there's uh, there's plenty to learn from on in these regards. If you have any questions, you can connect with me on any of the socials out there at Brian Solis. My email is brian.solis at salesforce.com if you want to just reach out to me directly. But ultimately, I'll just leave you with this. This is, uh, this is a time for great transformation. And not to get all philosophical, but I think philosophy is actually missing quite a bit in the C-suite these days, which is, if you think about Stoic philosophy, it's that you can't control the events that happen. We, couldn't, we can't control the pandemic. We can't control politics. Well, we can technically, but there's just a lot of things out of our control. But we can control how we respond. And I think this is that moment where we have to define what that response is. And it starts with you. There's a quote about, uh, you know, I always wondered why somebody didn't do something. And then I realized I was somebody. Change has to start somewhere. Innovation isn't a waterfall. Innovation isn't something that we're innately born with. It's something that we have to fight for and work for and believe in. So that means it can come from anywhere. And if you watched this far, then that I am 100% certain that innovation can and should start with you. And that is an incredible place to be because now the future is in your hands. Perfect tagline to close out our conversation, Brian. Um, you should just start putting that on stickers, on swag, everything. I'm calling it. I'm putting it in an email to Salesforce. Um, 
again, o- always a pleasure to uh, catch up with you and hear about all of the amazing work you're, you're doing now. I think especially now there's such an opportunity to dig a little bit deeper into the behavioral side of things, the psychology, the, why we do what we do, right? Because that, that's also changing. So thank you again so much for taking the time out to join me today. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. And I look forward to the next time as well. Yep, absolutely. And uh, thanks everyone out there for watching. Hopefully we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.